0: It was already rough with services out here. Then the coronavirus situation came, and it became so badly, so badly, that some of them even had to put up their own money to get us food, sometimes in the weekends without being on the schedule, go and check on us, because nobody would even check on us or nothing. Nothing.
1: That was Cherie, a participant at the New York Harm Reduction Educators, also known as NIRI, a syringe service program in East Harlem, New York, that offers people who use drugs access to sterile injection equipment, naloxone for overdose prevention, and drop-in services, including hepatitis C virus infection treatment, and buprenorphine, a medication to treat opioid use disorder. But at its core, NIRI is also about giving this marginalized population many of whom are street homeless, a safe place to take a shower, use a bathroom, and get a hug. My name is Linda Wong, and I'm the medical director of the Hepatitis C and Drug User Health Center of Excellence at the Institute of Advanced Medicine at Mount Sinai, which is part of the New York State Clinical Education Initiative. I am your host for this podcast series focused on drug user health. In my day job, I am also an internist and primary care provider practicing addiction medicine at the REACH program at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. In Episode 1, we will hear from Cherie and Pia Marcus, the Director of Syringe Access and Outreach at NIRE, to learn more about NIRI services and how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the program and the lives of its participants. So, it's really nice to meet with you today, Pia. Can you tell me a little bit about who you are, where you came from, how you got here?
2: Yeah. Um, so, I am the director of syringe access and program innovation for both New York Harm Reduction Educators and Washington Heights Corner Project. Um, and we're in the midst of a merger, and we're about to be called On Point NYC. I kind of fell in love with the work because of How much it has to do with loving people, regardless of who they are um, and what they're doing.
1: That's great. Um, And then can you tell me a little bit about Nairi?
2: Yeah. So Nairi is one of the oldest and largest syringe exchange programs um, in the country. We started um, in the early nineties and grew out of both the Act Up movement and the Young Lord movement. So we were providing syringes before it was legal to provide syringes. We got our um, official AIDS Institute license, and it's called a waiver to provide syringes in 1992. Um, so technically on the books, we started in 1992, but mm-hmm. the, the long history of advocacy and, uh, and illegal syringe exchange, I think is in, important to mention because that's the roots of the program. What does Nairi provide currently? Yeah. So we provide a whole array of services across the wide spectrum. So we have the most basic services that you don't even need to provide your name or anything to receive, which is showers, laundry, bathroom, mm-hmm. cup of coffee, just a safe place to hang out, mm-hmm. into syringe exchange. Um, actually, it's called syringe access because we don't require any kind of exchange. Right. So other harm reduction supplies like sniffing kits and Narcan to reverse overdoses. We do a lot of overdose training and prevention. Um, We provide test strips for drugs. We also provide counseling and education along with all this kind of supply distribution. Um, We do that both in a physical building in in our drop-in center and scattered across the South Bronx, Washington Heights, and East Harlem in an outreach capacity. We also have case management. That are working with people on things like housing and mental health care and and all sorts of of, of life skills. We have a clinic that's providing medical care specific to drug users, um, and then we also have our holistic health program, which is I think the most special part of our program um, and and takes us back to the history of the Young Lords, just providing auricular acupuncture mm-hmm. um, for detox and stress relief. And we've we've built on that a lot to have groups of volunteers come in to provide Reiki and Tai Chi and, and full body acupuncture and acupressure and you name it, we're doing it. Um, and it's, it's really special because we're we're community run as an acupuncture clinic and there's, there's really no other space for people who use drugs or people who are engaged in sex work, Mm. um, to come and sit and feel at peace, um, and, and receive care that's, that's regenerative.
1: That's amazing. Um, it really sounds like you guys offer so many different services for people, and they can. It sounds like they can just walk in the door and access these services. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. How are you doing? Uh, not, not bad. Not
3: bad.
2: You look okay. You know, yeah, surviving.
1: Making the best of it.
2: <laughs> so this is our drop-in center. Um, this is where people can come and sit and sleep and hang out, have a cup of coffee. Um, without giving any information about themselves. This is our lowest barrier service. What you're seeing here is kind of how we've COVID adapted the drop-in. So all the seats are eventually going to be pulled out and we're just going to have two seats for participants to wait for the bathroom. But what we did with the window is we reconfigured the space so that we could give supplies out of the window and set up a social distance line. So that's been... of the major change in the drop-in since covid and that's what's enabled us to keep our doors open so the staff can be inside wearing ppe and safe while giving supplies to participants through the window that's coffee that's clothing that's all sorts of safe injection supplies and safe smoking supplies safe sniffing supplies overdose prevention and intervention tools hygiene kits you name it we're giving it out
0: (laughs) my name is shari And I'm 34 years old. So since 2008, since I found out about Nairi, and that was in the 120th before they moved here, um, they've been helping me a lot since then. At that time, they didn't have that much services that they do now. But since they got here, they've been a support for me incredibly because anything I go through, anything i go through a fight i come to them and if i feel hurt or i feel confused or something not going right for me that's one thing i can trust nairi and i can come and talk to them you know about it and a lot of positive people here that can help you and lead you to the right path they wonderful um what kind of services
1: do you use when you come to nairi
0: um, I use, like, the house services, Yeah, housing services. I used to use the yoga services. Any little services they have, I try to be involved because you never know how much they can help you. Like, mm. the Narcan services, the um, overdose services mm-hmm. that they teach you how to use an Narcan for a person that's a size, so like that. If an overdose is happening, you can maybe save a life. Mm-hmm. And with that, save almost 15 lives. You um, saved 15, 15 lives? Wow. In Lexington. That's amazing. Yeah, because it's rough out here.
2: This is one of our showers, so we have two showers and we have two bathrooms. So normally when this place is open and when we reopen... We have a station outside of the bathrooms where um, the staff are to monitor the bathrooms. This is where timers are, where the knocks on the doors happen. It's also where our overdose interventions happen. So you can see we have oxygen, um, we have a defibrillator, and we have this big toolkit of all of our overdose intervention tools. So unlike a lot of places, we train all of our staff from all levels of our organization and all levels of training to intervene in overdoses at the level of a nurse. So we we insert nasal airways, we insert oral airways, we use oxygen, we use Ambu bags, we use AEDs. We use all the tools necessary to deal with overdose um, that you would see in hospitals, and in places like supervised injection facilities around the world. We set up tables in the bathrooms so that people have a space to do whatever they need to do um, on a sterile surface. And the bathrooms are cleaned between every single participant's use.
1: And then I'd love to hear about what the medical clinic offers yeah. and uh, what type of providers and clinicians are on site.
2: Yeah, so, our health hub, we call it, um, our clinic, offers um, specific care for people who are using drugs and engaging in sex work. So, that includes getting people onto buprenorphine, prep and PEP access. So, post exposure prophylaxis and pre exposure prophylaxis for HIV care. Um, we do a lot of wound care, we do gyneco- gynecological exams, we do hepatitis C treatment. That's a, a huge piece of what we do. And the nurses that staff the clinic are NIRI staff. The providers that staff the clinic are coming from Montefiore. So the clinic is only possible because of our partnership with Montefiore, which has been a huge asset to us. And all of our providers are really committed to serving people who are actively using drugs. So at the, at the bedrock of the engagement in our clinic is not what are you doing and why are you doing it? It's how can I help? And what do you need in order to be safe, whether that's getting on bup or continuing to use in safer ways. Um, We don't want anyone to to fear accessing care because of what they're engaged in. Um, And it's a really unique model to put a clinic in the back of a drop-in center because we don't want to be a clinic. We want to be a place that people can access without any kind of barrier, without any stigma, without any shame. And a doctor or a nurse just happens to be there to provide them even more mm-hmm. care if, if they want it.
0: You know, anybody that have like blood pressure problems, feel fever, anything, yeah, they could come see the nurse. And they always help me. What have they helped you with? Um, with my HIV test, hep C test. Thank God it's negative. Thank God. But if anything, if they come out positive, they got counselors, yeah, that will talk to you. Mm-hmm. Thank God, so anybody that's really got confused or want to see if they're pregnant or have been at rest or not at risk or want to know their status, they help you a lot with here. They, you know, they, they they, give you the service that you really need and they break it down for you. They drive you through, and if they got to stand by your side with, or with you through the whole thing, they do it too. Mm-hmm. So that's a beautiful thing. Sounds like they also
1: provide Suboxone or bup here yeah, as well.
0: They do. They do. For a lot of people that stop mm-hmm. and they still was dipping and dabbing, they wanted like to be over, over completely. They give them the help they needed with the Suboxone. They got a program, a great program here, and they help you with that. They got people that if you need help getting your SSI, going to um, appointments, housing appointments, SSI appointments, um welfare appointments, any appointments. Mm-hmm. You need somebody with you. They got staffs that will go with you. And everything is confidential. Mm-hmm. Everything is completely confidential. This is our
2: doctor's office. Um... So you can see that, like this, is all the way in the back of the drop-in, tucked in a tiny little invisible place. And that was that was the the goal in forming our clinic in our drop-in center, was to center the drop-in center first. This is a drop-in center that happens to have a doctor. So when clinics are when the clinic is open and providers are on site, this is where staff um, participants are receiving care. And what's really struck. A lot of participants and other providers, when we when we tour people of the space, is just how humanizing it feels. Like it's bright, it's colorful. Um, we're we're not trying to create a place that feels like people can't be themselves. Um, they can be whoever they want to be, and and we'll we'll work with you. Um,
1: What's the cartoon on the wall?
2: The cartoon on the wall are comics from. Another harm reduction provider. I've actually been trying to find these. I've been talking to Ben to find more of these to frame. Yeah. So they're just like conversations about people using drugs and, and being treated like humans. And they also talk a lot about like why people are doing what they're doing, um, like the social fabric surrounding people's drug use, um, which I think is really important. And it's it's pretty radical to ha- to come into a doctor's office and see yourself mirrored on a wall and being taken seriously and being given dignity and respect. So the art that we have is is a big piece of how we want to make people feel comfortable. Most of our participants are deeply street entrenched and living on the street, or in shelters, but mostly on the street. So just having access to a place to use the bathroom Mm -hmm. um, and a place to shower is a huge health intervention. We also are required by the AIDS Institute to have overdose prevention policies and procedures in place for our bathrooms because they know that if a person is receiving syringes, they're probably going to go into the bathroom and use, Mm -hmm. and we don't want anyone to die in our bathrooms. So our bathrooms are designed for people to be able to do whatever they need. Um, inside the bathroom. Um, It's a private space for them. um, And we don't put any kind of restrictions on what people do in that private space. We do um, monitor our bathrooms to make sure that nobody dies. We give everybody 15 minutes, whether you're in a shower or a bathroom, every five minutes, there's a knock on the door. Mm -hmm. And if we don't hear from you, we go back, we go into the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Um, We reverse hundreds of overdoses a year this way. And it's a, it's a really important part of our whole health intervention.
1: That's amazing. Hundreds of overdoses, you said? Yes. Okay. And has anyone died or? Never. Okay. Got it. And how many participants would you say that you guys um, engage or touch every day?
2: Yeah, um, we engage over 5,000 um, between the two programs. It's even more. That's Nairi specific. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of people. Um, and we're giving out over a million syringes a year. Wow. Just on the Nairi side.
1: And the engaging 5,000 folks, is that over the year? Or, yeah. okay, gotcha. I want to move towards hearing a little bit about how COVID 19 has yeah. impacted Nairi and uh, the services that you've been able to provide. And if you're able to share, you know, how you think it's impacted the participants and yeah. the population, or maybe I should say the community that you serve
0: city the world's worst affected city
2: quarantine state state of emergency 40 to 80% of people will ultimately
0: become affected biblical but we're having a lot of suffering a lot of death the sounds of sirens are haunting
2: um covid has been horrific um let's say um it definitely it, it threw everything that we did upside down. Um, we had to very quickly read, readjust our programs and, and redesign our programs mm. with very, very little information. So in the very beginning of COVID, when we didn't really know what was going on, when it was clear that there was community spread, but, um, the world and and the country and the medical providers, um, were saying we only have to have to assess people who have travel history mm-hmm. and who have fever. And I remember all of us looking at each other in the drop-in center and at Nairi and thinking, nobody's traveling, but we know that there's community spread. And right. so what do we do to keep staff and participants safe? This was at the same time that everybody was saying nobody should be wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. The only people who should be wearing masks are people who are sick and there were good reasons for saying that. There were, there were shortages of supplies, obviously. That being said, um, we very quickly made a decision that putting people in some kind of face covering made people feel safer. So we were working in bandanas um, in the beginning of March when everyone told us that we were nuts. And it was only a matter of weeks before the governor issued the order that everybody needs to be wearing face coverings. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had had no idea what was coming and what was going on, and we had to make very difficult decisions in real time. Mm -hmm. So the broadest impact that COVID had on our services is that we now have a six-foot distance from our participants. Our work is about radical love. We hug people, we give them care and affection, and that's... A, one of our most potent tools and we can't do that. So mm-hmm. it's kind of felt like we've had a, like a sense and a, like a limb ripped off of us. Um, and we had to scale back everything except for supply distribution. We kind of refused to, to give up on giving out syringes, but we had to pull back significantly. Mm-hmm. We had, um, a, a few presumed positive cases among our staff, um, who were unable to get access to testing in March. And we decided to quarantine everybody, but our staff were unwilling to, to not give out supplies at all. Mm -hmm. So supplies were continuing to be given out from a six foot distance, Mm -hmm. um, through our staff quarantine. So we, we figured out a way to keep people safe and to isolate people while still, getting supplies out there. But the effect that that had and that continues to have is that syringe access was basically pulled back into the 90s. All of the access points that we had were scaled back. Mm -hmm. We knew before COVID that we weren't reaching enough people, that we weren't saturating the market with syringes, which is what's so important with syringe access. And then to scale that back, knowing that we weren't reaching everybody,
0: um, has had a profound impact. So it's, it's a little confusing out here because, like, people just killing each other, hurting themselves because they don't find nowhere else to go.
3: Mm.
0: And they feel like it's in the end, it's yeah. the end of the world. Yeah. Programs, detoxes, I, a lot of them are
3: closed.
0: A lot of them the other night. I was struggling with a a friend of mine because he thought Harlem was open and he went he wasn't wasn't open. Mm. He went to so many hospitals and they was closed. He didn't know what to do. Thank God, you know, I helped him out a little bit into the next morning. So he was out. I called St. John's for him. Mm. And he was able to go to St. John's. Thank God, but... Yeah. St. John's for detox. Yeah. Oh, they're pretty good there. Yeah. yeah. They're awesome. So they opened, so I was able to help them to go there, thank God.
2: We're hearing widespread reports that people are sharing syringes, mm. um, which wow. is obvious if you're not providing them. Yeah. We're hearing widespread reports of both overdoses that are being intervened in in the community and an inability for participants to hustle to get money to buy drugs which is causing withdrawal
1: right.
2: um, and that's a very dangerous situation because when partic- when people who are using drugs um, specifically heroin don't have access to heroin and their tolerance goes down once they get a little money they get a little bit more drugs they use a little bit more than they than they, they had been used to that's an overdose mm-hmm. Um so the the f- this kind of instability in the in the market and in people's lives um has created increased overdose risk mm-hmm. and that's what we're seeing and that's what we're hearing. So we we moved as many services as we could onto telehealth like through phones. We set up a phone booth in our um in our drop-in center mm-hmm. so that we could have contactless access for people to call a case manager or their doctor. Um, because people don't have phones, so the whole pivot to telehealth for the whole world seemed like this magical intervention. When for our participants living on the street, not having anywhere safe to keep their belongings, right. phone access is a huge issue.
0: It's, it's difficult out here. Yeah. Difficult. But like me, I don't have a place to stay, so even having a phone or electronics, we're going to charge them. Yeah. Like, you know, and then I go to charge them in the links. I get tired from trying to get my phone, trying to do this, trying to clean, trying to charge, doing so much. Then by the middle of the afternoon, I'm be exhausted. So i I'm be trying to charge my phone and I fall asleep, and then somebody come and steal it.
2: Mm. <laughs> So this is our nurse's office. Um, This is where a lot of health education happens, Um, blood draws when we're doing hepatitis C treatment, um, and all sorts of things happen here. What we're gonna do for COVID is actually redesign the space. So before these double doors opened into a common kitchen, and in order to create privacy and space for the patient and the provider, we're gonna have the patient on one side, there's gonna be plexiglass here between the participant and the provider. Um, the big challenge for us has been how do we put in barriers without making people feel like they're in jail? And also because we're, we do blood draws all over people's bodies because it's often hard for to find a vein, we can't just have access to an arm, we have to have access to a leg, we have to have access to lots of different places. Um, so a full plexi barrier just wouldn't work for us. So we're, we've been creative in figuring out what kind of barrier can we use, how can we adapt that, how can we make that movable so that the nurses or, or whatever staff are doing blood draws can can do that in a way that makes the participant feel safe and comfortable.
1: It sounds like in addition to a potential increase in overdoses Mm -hmm. that are happening in the community, there might also be an increase in HIV and hepatitis C transmission because people are sharing needles and also uh, maybe a rise in skin and soft tissue infections because of that. Can you talk a little bit more about about what you think
2: might be going on? Yeah. Um, Well, we know... We know when syringe sharing is happening that hepatitis C transmission and HIV transmission shoots to the roof. Um, this is why syringe access was fought for so aggressively in the 90s during the HIV epidemic. And what we found out in the early 90s was that syringe access... Makes HIV transmission and hepatitis C transmission nearly impossible. If you have your own syringes and you're not sharing and you're not reusing, you're eliminating the risk of transmission of bloodborne illnesses like HIV and hepatitis C, and you're also limiting and reducing um, potential wounds and harms to your injection sites. So if you're using a dull syringe that you're sharing with other people, um, there's not only the risk of transmitting HIV and hepatitis C, there's also significant risks to damaging your veins and your skin.
1: Mm -hmm. And so, um, when you hear about participants who may have, um, wounds or things that need medical attention, um, what do you do?
2: We've done a few different things. So most basically, we provide wound care kits. Mm -hmm. Um, They're kits that we pack that include gauze, antibiotic ointment, um, gloves, sterile saline. We teach people how to wash out their wounds, keep them moist, um, what to look out for when things become really dangerous and they should seek emergency care. Um, So a huge piece of this is education. A huge piece of this work is giving people the tools to take care of their health on their own with the support of their community. Um, But the other piece is that we've had to be really creative. We've had nurses go and visit people in their homes, um, visit people on the street, and do assessments and provide treatment right on the spot, wearing N95s and PPE creativity is, is the main tool at our disposal right now. And we're, we're using every option that we have to get people the care they need. But the, the, the huge numbers of people that need care and that are living so on the fringes of society makes it that much more challenging to find people and to provide care to people, um, during COVID how are your
1: participants doing in terms of COVID infections? And yeah. do you have a sense of whether or not people have been hospitalized? Mm-hmm. And what's their health like related to that?
2: Yeah, so there's kind of two diverging trajectories in terms of COVID that we've seen with our participants. One route is the one group is the group of participants that are living in shelters. So we, we heard early on about horrible conditions in shelters. We know the baseline of shelter conditions is is really horrific, um, which is why a lot of people decide not to go into shelters. Um, So the COVID infections that we heard about were shelter-based, and then the city quickly put people into hotel rooms, which I think made a huge difference in terms of COVID infection. That being said, because of um, all the different ways in which shelters are not safe places for people, in addition to people who use drugs, often because they can't keep their supplies with them um, to use safely, the majority of our participants are living on the street. And we saw a very strange and interesting thing happen. Um, We were expecting when we quarantined the majority of our staff and had very, very minimal peer-based Um, syringe access, that our most vulnerable participants, people living and sleeping in parks and on the streets, were going to be hit by COVID really, really hard. Um, And that we would find our street-entrenched participants decimated by COVID. We found that actually very few, if any, reported any kind of COVID exposure or COVID experience. And what we think is happening and happened is that these are people that are so marginalized in our society and in our communities that COVID actually didn't touch them at all. It didn't reach them. And people very quickly um, formed, kind of retreated into their tight networks even further. So people people created social pods Mm. (laughs) before we were even talking about social pods as a thing to do to keep people safe. And I think that's a really powerful indication of how people who use drugs have always historically taken care of each other. And that's the roots of harm reduction. Mm. Harm reduction came out of people using drugs, taking care of each other and making sure each other was safe. Mm. And that happened almost instantaneously. Um, But there's another dynamic at play with our Participants living on the street that I think is really important to discuss in terms of COVID, um, which is that there is a constant onslaught by the NYPD, by all sorts of different institutions within the city trying to push people out of where they're sleeping on the street. There isn't a clear system or a there isn't a clear system in place to move people from street to housing. There is a clear effort to displace people who are sleeping on the street. And what that does is it rips communities apart. When you have people who are sleeping together, who are looking after each other and making sure that they're surviving together, you have safety and you have a network and a community That providers like us can access. We know where in the park a group of people are sleeping. We know we can access them there. We know that when we give them Narcan, they're going to use it on each other and they're going to tell us about it and we're going to be able to give them care and treatment. Same thing for wounds, same thing for everything. When the NYPD comes in and breaks up where people are sleeping, it not only disrupts the community, it also creates an infection point. They are potentially introducing COVID into communities that were untouched. And what we saw um, during COVID is that the the types of encounters between people sleeping on the street and police became even more violent. That with shelter in place orders, with more and more people inside and 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 the street really being out of public view, um, people were were brutalized.
0: It been hard because I had a place that I was staying underneath the bridge, and I was I was okay. I felt safe there, you know. It was locked in with the gate. We had it clean, very clean, clean every day. Now you go, it's so disgusting. It's like people just by smelling they can get sick. Disgusting now. And we tried to keep the place, you know, until we got help. I don't know what happened. When the DOT came, they wanted us out. So the cop said, we well, got to leave. So we got everything out. Was going to leave? Then they said, no, for the time being, sleep across the bridge until you get the help tomorrow. And they pick you up in the house, yeah. Then we was putting the stuff. They said, no, the rest of the stuff, Gotta go in the garbage. Just excuse me. None of my stuff is stolen. Everything that I have, people give it to me, I work hard for it, mm. I buy it some way or the other. But like I try to do everything by the book, you know? So I listened to everything they told me to do and all that. Out of nowhere, they just started grabbing my stuff and throwing it on the on the garbage truck. Mm. So, you know, I'm telling them why you're doing like this is my property. Like my clothes, my teddy bear. So, you know, little things that I carry it was very sentimental to me. That's the only thing I really own. I don't have nothing else that I can grab onto. Yeah. And they put the cuffs on me. I'm asking them if I'm being arrested. They're telling me no. I'm asking them, so why are you putting the cuffs on me? Like, don't worry, it's for your own safety. They started throwing out what I took out. Mm-hmm. Two week speakers, two week Jordans. That somebody just spent $100 buying some Jordans for me because they were sick of seeing me dirty. Mm-hmm. Then I caught a, um, a seizure being on cuffs. They just body slammed me. I thought I was going to die. Mm. I was going out with this boy. I thank him.
3: Because if it wasn't for him,
0: pushing them away, mm. you know, the only thing I wanted was my cat to be safe. You know, that's my therapy cat. I asked them why they was doing this. They couldn't give me no explanation. In the end of the day, the ambulance came. They told me, in fact, leaving the ambulance, all my stuff was gonna be in the
3: garbage.
0: Mm. Even though I couldn't even get services after my seizure, after dumb body slamming me, then when I got up on my right side by my hip and almost my waist, I got a big old bruise. You know, I never the respected. I did everything they told me to do. I have my mask. I have my gloves on. It's not like they feel threatened that I didn't have nothing on.
2: And this was in direct conflict with CDC guidelines. So mm-hmm. CDC guidelines came out pretty quickly that um, people living in encampments and people living unsheltered should be left where they are, untouched. That is the safest way for people to shelter in place. Um and to stay healthy. And those guidelines have been ignored.
1: So it sounds like where we are at now is that at Nairi, you're still able to distribute supplies, maybe in a slightly limited capacity compared to pre-COVID, but that really many of your other onsite services are still not accessible. Um, when do you anticipate that some of these services will come back online? And what else do you guys need to yeah. make that happen?
2: yeah so we've made huge progress this week. Um, we relaunched all of our outreach sites this week. Um, so every single one of our outreach sites that was open prior to COVID is now reopened. Um, we're reopening our bathrooms any day now. (laughs) Um, and after the bathrooms are open, we're going to bring the clinic back. We're going to start, um, a staggered schedule of case managers. Um, what we need is funding. <laughs> we, we don't have the resources to, um, to make these quick pivots without unrestricted funding. Our funding historically has always been city and state funding. That's particularly worrisome right now because we don't actually know what city and state budgets look like
1: it's a big question mark. Yeah. And it sounds like so much of the amazing work that you guys provide for the community hinges upon this funding from a budget that is still yet to be determined. Right.
2: Um and it's also important to to note that our our position before COVID regarding funding was not secure either. Mm-hmm. Um harm reduction programs are not are not being funded in in a way that meets the the crisis of the overdose crisis, the opioid crisis, um, we were often overlooked um, because we're we're misunderstood in what we do, and it's not understood that what we do is make pe- make sure people safe and alive to make choices and to make changes in their life. So even before COVID. Finding funding and finding a way to provide the services that we provide was a challenge. COVID has made that even more difficult. Most of our funding is tied to hepatitis C or HIV treatment, which are very important things to be funding, but do not meet the full needs of the people we serve. The people we serve are not diseases. They're people with complex needs. And that means that they need care and support that doesn't always fall under a a strict budget line or deliverable. Like what's the cost of a hug? What's the cost of a safe place to sleep when you've been using for days because you have nowhere safe to go and you have to stay awake in order to stay alive? You can't can't put a a monetary value on that, but that's some of our most potent interventions. So we've done a huge amount of work um, in the garden during COVID in order to prepare the garden. Now that we know that outdoors is the safest place for people to be, we're actually gonna start having groups out here. We're gonna start rebuilding our drop-in center outdoors. And we wanna make sure that that's safe and comfortable throughout all the seasons because we are anticipating a second wave. Um, And you can see four seats spaced out amongst the benches um, where participants will sit. Um, We're going to bring all our support groups out into the garden. And then we have these spaced out tables and chairs with umbrellas so that people can just sit, have a cup of coffee, smoke a cigarette, whatever you want. And at the same time, we're growing lots of different vegetables and medicinal herbs. So the garden is a big new piece of our holistic health program. We're gonna be growing herbs in order to make into tinctures and that all is participant driven. So the participants are helping to garden, the participants are gonna be helping to make medicinal tinctures and learning about what those are and what they do for them. Um, So every piece of this is, is about including participants in the process.
1: Definitely, as a um, as a provider who works in a more traditional medical setting, I frequently find myself in a position where I feel totally under equipped mm-hmm. to take care of the uh, the patients in front of me. And we we have many patients who either have been referred from organizations like NRI, mm-hmm. um, people who use drugs, and um, have a lot of these additional needs that I personally feel that our medical setting is just not equipped to handle. And I'm wondering if you can speak to a little bit about how other providers and clinicians Mm -hmm. in New York can um, utilize and support organizations like Nairi.
2: Yeah. Um, I think, first of all, it's important that I share that we do a huge amount of training for medical providers. Mm -hmm. We, we want medical providers to feel like they do have the tools and they do have an understanding of what, what are the needs and what are the barriers that are, that medical providers are creating or, or following, um, in ways that they don't really understand or recognize, like not to put blame onto the providers, but the medical community does not train people to treat people who use drugs. They train people to treat people to stop using drugs. Mm-hmm. And they train people to tell other people not to use drugs. My father, who um, is in his mid-70s and had worked in a, a free clinic in on the Lower East Side in his early career and became a psychiatrist— um, has talked to me a lot about how in the psychiatric community and in the medical community at large people who are actively using drugs are seen as not worthy of anybody's time. Mm-hmm. They're not going to change. They're 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 not like the effort of the profet- of the of the clinician is is seen as a waste of time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And what I want people what we want people to understand is that giving people care is not a waste of time. And that change in behavior is possible only when people feel cared for, feel like their lives matter, and feel a sense of purpose. And that can happen when you create relationships of trust and you give people power and dignity. That can happen in a doctor's office. It can't happen if you don't treat people with respect. And if you don't recognize the fact that active substance use is always going to happen. And it's more dangerous when people can't talk about it and can't receive care. Um, I think there's a lot of discomfort around the fact that people have always used substances, that drugs are always going to be a part of our society. And I think there's also a lot of discomfort around asking oneself, why? Why are people doing this? Why are so many people using opiates? We talk a lot about pain, but we don't talk about emotional pain, about spiritual pain, about social pain. Like these are the more, this is the complex reality in which people are trying to survive and actually making really strategic and smart decisions about their health and their lives by using drugs. Um... So we can help in that way. We can have conversations with providers. We can have trainings with providers that make it more digestible to understand what the role of providers is um, and what our role is to help.
1: What do you think would have been really important to have throughout all of this for you? I
0: mean, really somewhere that I can bathe so I can stay nice and clean. You understand, because Mm -hmm. being dirty and that's how people get sick out here. So I think if they open showers up for people that's in the street and let them wash up a little bit, I think it would reduce Mm
3: -hmm.
0: a little of the, you know, pandemic a little bit. Yeah. But I can't do that no more.
1: That's it for Episode 1 of the CEI Drug User Health Podcast. I'm Linda Wong, and we thank you for listening. In our next episode, we will hear from medical providers at the New York Harm Reduction Educators and learn more about the role of medical care at syringe service programs, including what does low-barrier or low-threshold care really mean, and what is the future of that kind of care post-COVID-19. You can find this upcoming episode and future episodes at ceitraining.org and coming soon wherever you normally find podcasts.